Faith is the victory that overcometh the world. A direct quotation from the latter part of 1 John 5 verse 4 reminding us of that song that we just sang. The words that still ring so beautifully and loudly in our ears as we contemplate the marvelous victory, the triumphant character of that which accords to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come together this evening, so many things for which we could be thankful the character of the life that God has given us, the opportunity to appreciate His handiwork about us, the understanding that when the God of heaven spoke, it was done. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. Tonight, as we come to this point in the lesson, perhaps it wouldn't at all be inappropriate to call your attention to the arrangement of flowers. I failed to make mention of that to Ted for, for the announcements. The family of Ellen Gwynn, ask that we bring that here and um, just as a element of their thanksgiving to the congregation here that that was actually displayed at the funeral home at the service this afternoon but they ask that we bring that here certainly we continue to think of that family the loss that they've endured but also the victory that can be appreciated for those in christ blessed are the dead which die in the lord from henceforth yea saith the spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them we each hope that we can pass from this life those who have lived in the Lord. Tonight, as we come to the Revelation, we continue our series of studies in that last book in the Bible, the 66th and final book in God's holy and divine volume. And as we come to that particular text tonight, we reach the 18th chapter. We aren't too distant from the close of that book, but tonight, as we look into the 18th chapter, we shall in fact highlight the character of the fall of Babylon. It is with that in mind I would direct your attention by way of introduction to a few of the matters that we have seen in the series to this point, specifically the most recent matters of the following. So often the Revelation, much like the other books in the Bible, is such that it does a very powerful and apt job of assisting one in interpreting it as one gives thought of other passages that describe a very similar circumstance. One of the preachers of old did state that God's book is its own best commentary. As various passages from one sort or another help shed light on and perhaps direct our attention to features that can assist in the understanding of even parts of the character of the Bible. As we come to this 18th chapter, it is not as if the matters in it are entirely new in the sense of their declaration. Back in chapter 14, verse 8, we notice there that the fall of Babylon was expressly declared. In other words, the very thing that was initially announced on that occasion, we have now built up to over the intervening chapters. And in this chapter, we see the fruition of that very destructiveness and the fall of Babylon itself. As far as some of those things that we have seen in the intervening chapters... We noticed in chapter 15 the highlighted glory of that crystal sea and the saints standing upon it. But as that chapter closed, we did see the eventful matter of those plagues and the bowls that were going to come with them. In chapter 16, we saw one by one those bowls poured forth and the terrible character of all the destructiveness that went with it. In chapter 17, we furthermore saw in that chapter again the harlot and the beast this woman that in fact engaged in this prostitutional activity and God directly said that she too would meet her doom. Now we're ready. Having looked at these intervening plagues, having looked at the scarlet colored beast and the woman, to come to another impression of Babylon and the destructiveness that should come with it. 
It is with that in mind, I would invite you to turn with me to the 18th chapter. And in particular, the first three verses are those which we shall focus on first. Revelation 18, verses 1 through 3. And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Some initial announcements in these opening three verses, not the least of which is the fact that this is what John saw. On so many occasions in the Revelation, John saw an angel who made an announcement or who engaged in a particular activity, and so it is again, an angel having great authority, verse 1. It is so described as the earth was lightened with His glory. We immediately gain the impressiveness that what's about to transpire is such that it was to be a glorifying matter with regard to God who pronounced it, and in the sense that it answered the prayers of many of those saints who in fact had already been earnest in prayer concerning this fall of Babylon. We noticed it was to be an utter and complete desolation of Babylon. No wonder we shall, during this lesson, revisit the scene of Babylon and try to appreciate what it was that was being stated in that reference. The reason given here matches exactly what was asserted in chapter 14 verse 8 in chapter 17, verse 2, telling us that this book fits together so in innately. It's not as if we're approaching a new subject. This has been testified from chapter 14, and now we're only seeing the culmination of it, the destruction of Babylon. The Babylon of the Old Testament perhaps should come to us in thinking as follows. We're well aware that Babylon played a central role near the close of the Old Testament. God's people left Egyptian bondage in the book of Exodus, but it was in fact Moses speaking for God, and Joshua did the same, who told them very directly, if you disobey the Lord, if you refuse to humble yourself and follow His way back into captivity, you will go. But this time it will not be Egypt. It was to be another power. It was, of course, to be Babylon. In some ways, the Old Testament, for much of it, can be viewed that way. First, there was the departure from Egypt, but later there was the going in to Babylonian captivity. Many of the prophets, like Jeremiah, many of the prophets, such as the others that might be listed, foretold of the event and urged and admonished the people to be wise enough to live faithfully, to live honestly, to heed the words of the prophets, However, in the finality, they refused to do so. And as such, God in fact directly said, I will turn you over to Babylon. This was not against God's wishes. It was His wish. It was His punishment upon a disobedient and gainsaying people. Jeremiah 7 verses 27 and 28. It is for that reason that these comments are in fact in order. The 47th chapter of Isaiah is a somewhat lengthy chapter, the first part of which is a direct condemnation of Babylon, the prophetic doom that was to come upon Babylon because of her sins. 
the writer of Revelation, John, borrows a fair amount of the language of, of Isaiah 47 and applies it directly again here in the Revelation to this spiritual Babylon and the destruction that, of course, will shortly come. Jeremiah 50, verses 24 and 39, again, another prophet announces the doom and judgment of God upon Babylon. Some of that terminology is borrowed as well. Finally, I would ask you to notice Jeremiah 51, verse 8. The second to the last chapter in the book of Jeremiah. And on that occasion, one last time, in another long chapter, the announcement of God, that just as surely as His own people had been punished for their sins, so too Babylon would not escape. The Chaldeans would meet their doom because of their sin. One of the lessons that seems so directly comes from that perhaps might be highlighted in these observations. It's interesting that the decree that we have just seen in Revelation 18, beginning in verse 1, is again the outright decree of heaven. What was happening to Babylon was no accident. It was no happenstance. It wasn't just a trickle of history. This was the absolute design and will of God that she would be punished in the way we're about to read in this chapter. The same, of course, was true of Babylon in the Old Testament. Those prophets, as they foretold the doom of Babylon, it came to pass exactly as those prophets had foretold it would. You might notice that many, as we're about to read, though supportive they were of Babylon, it would not be enough encouragement to stop the destruction. In fact, with that in mind, I would ask that you notice interestingly, as we'll begin reading next in verse number 4, the highlights of these thoughts take us to the following set of concepts and ideas. Two verses, verses 4 and 5, please. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached into heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Interesting, isn't it, to hear the wording of verse number 4, Come out of her, my people. We immediately appreciate that Babylon had been able to influence many. Whatever it was that Babylon was had been very successful in influencing a whole host of peoples to not only follow, but in fact to accept what she stood for, that which she was, the way that she went about her orderly business. In that acceptance, however, it was wrong because the next verse again mentioned their iniquities and God said for my people to come out of them. No wonder throughout the sacred text of the Bible, even from the Old Testament onward, we encounter some observations that remind us of the same. Did Jesus say in John 17, even speaking of the apostles, that though they live in the world, He prayed that they be not of it. Isn't it true that you and I, as human beings, live on the globe, this surface that we call earth? But oh, how amazingly the Bible instructs us, don't be of it. Don't borrow your thinking, your culture, your approach of those things around you because this society is in fact following after the God of this world, referenced in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3. How often does the New Testament encourage us to come out from the character of this world, and to live peculiarly, to live separately. I've listed a few of those verses. In 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14, 
There the apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians said, Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and I will receive you. I will be your God, you shall be my people. That is a beautiful promise, isn't it? But come out from among them. He had just prefaced that three verses earlier with this statement, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. There is not to be this unequal yoking of a person of God with some other who is not of God in such a union that the issues concerning the, Christian, the Christianity of the one might be forfeited or might be called into question. It is for that reason that yet another passage in Ephesians 5 verse 11, "...have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them." You and I are thus not to have that association with unfruitful works of darkness. Later, do we not also see in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 10 and following, as well as Ezekiel 8 verse 12, words and admonitions that remind us of this. There were some in Ezekiel's day, and there are some today who, either directly or indirectly, live as if God does not see them. In fact, there were people, amazingly enough, foolish enough in Ezekiel to think, God doesn't see us. He seeth us not, was their exact statement. Ezekiel had to remind them that, in fact, if we may describe it in a somewhat figurative fashion, Though you in fact travel on the most out-of-the-way roadway to the most faraway village or hamlet on earth and do so under the cover of the darkest night there is, God still knows it. He is aware of every thought, every consideration, and the people of Ezekiel's day needed that reminder. And oh, how we also should ever be mindful of that truth. We read in Titus 2 beginning in verse number 11, about a passage that in fact harmonizes with our thinking on this one. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we shall live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking unto Jesus, as the next verse states it, looking unto the One who is the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of that great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. What kind of people then are we? Peculiar. Directly that means a people of God's own possession. Those who we do not own ourselves, but He owns us. He's purchased us. Is that not highlighted in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, a people of His own possession? We're there told we're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your mind and your body which are God's. It would seem then in Revelation 18, Babylon had forgotten these lessons. And for that reason she had begun to live delicately, wantonly, sinfully, and licentiously. For those reasons and others that does bring us somewhat quickly to verses 6 and following. It is with that in mind, let's read verses 6 through 8, the next three verses of Revelation 18. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works, and the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. How much she hath glorious glorified herself, and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her, for she saith in her heart, I sit as a queen, and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. 
Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. It's easy to appreciate the basic thrust of those verses, isn't it? What she had done to others, we notice God saying shall in fact be done to her. What had so powerfully been done by her in harshness, in cruelty, in difficulty, without concern and care for the human condition? Notice God said it shall be returned double unto her. Isn't it a fantastic thing to ever appreciate the God of heaven is aware of all that is done upon this earth and those who act in such a heinous fashion. They too, of course, shall meet their judgment before the God of heaven. And we notice that this Babylon was to be judged powerfully and mightily as a consequence of what she had done to others. You'll notice it involved sorrow, famine, and pride. It involved furthermore from verse number 7... This statement of pridefulness on her part. She said, Babylon that is, I sit a queen. She lifted herself up in highness as if she demanded all others to bow before her. This Babylon, as we've learned in previous chapters, was a city, of course. But oh, how mightily she thought of herself. Doesn't the Bible encourage humility? Doesn't it encourage an appreciation of one's status in lowliness before God, and those who would act in a different fashion than that, acting with arrogance and in pride and in condescending nature toward others, those will be abased. The Lord promised such in Luke, the 14th chapter. As you and I come to verses 7 and 8, again, that's an almost direct quotation from Isaiah 47. This business of sitting as a queen because the Babylon of the Old Testament did that too, and it is to be noted that God, through Daniel, did tell Nebuchadnezzar, You are the head of gold, he said, but there is coming another kingdom after you. And this other one, in fact, will come to reign over the character of earth. Your kingdom will be no more. This kingdom Babylon here also had raised herself up, but she too would be judged and she would be brought low. You'll notice these observations reminding us of the certainty of God's judgment. We've so often had occasion to note that in the Revelation, but it still comes so mightily before us, and it shall do so again especially in chapter number 20. In fairness here, we do notice even those that are wicked, though they don't live as such and though they tend not to think of such, they too will have to give an answer for all those wicked deeds they did, all that ungodliness that they wrought. Doesn't that help us imagine just for a brief moment, the awfulness that shall befall the day of judgment. Now, frankly, this judgment upon Babylon was going to come sooner than that. But isn't it interesting for us just to contemplate what awaits and the tragedy of it and the terror of it? No wonder Paul was on fire in thinking in 2 Corinthians 5.11. In the understanding of the terror of that day, he said, We persuade men. Paul knew there were individuals dying, lost, apart from God, and he said, out of the terror of what they shall face, we persuade men. You'll notice that Babylon was to meet her doom. I would invite you as we come to the bottom to notice in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. 
For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Babylon had sowed to the flesh. Of that she would, of course, reap all the corruption that would come with it. Are you and I wiser than that? Sowing always to the Spirit, desirous of a spiritual harvest that will redound in the eternality for you and me in heaven. That, of course, is the goal it must be. And so it is. The judgment upon Babylon takes us to the next set of verses, verses 9 through 20, the longest section of the chapter. Let's, in fact, as we notice it, read it first and then make some additional comments about this section of Revelation 18. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and live deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth her, their merchandise any more. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thine wood and all manner vessels of ivory and all manner vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. And the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee. And all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. For in one hour is she made desolate. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. A rather vivid set of imageries as we give thought to what has just been described. We notice again the judgment, the fall of Babylon as it's described before us. I would ask us to give some thought as we start again in verse number 9. We notice the kings of the earth, at least some of them, specifically those who have committed fornication with her, with Babylon, are the very ones who in that verse, it says, bewailed her. This city, Babylon, by the influence that she had exerted, by her character of exerting significant commercial influence, business influence, caused others to follow along her sinfulness, all of those who committed fornication with her. And that's God's way here of stating those who practiced what she encouraged them to practice, who behaved like she did, partly out of her insistence on doing so. We're each aware of how trade partnerships work. 
at least we in America know very well how to get things the way we want it. We tell China or some other nation, as long as you'll do this, we'll freely trade with you. And you can use the character of the strong economy of America to assist and help your economy. And so we demand particular human rights on occasion, or we demand free passage in parts of the sea. We, in essence, make our demands and require that they meet them if we are going to trade with them. Babylon did the same. If you want to enjoy all these things, the ivory, the wood, the metals, the precious stones, and all the things that we have to offer, this is what you'll have to do. All of those who broke beneath the pressure and did what she told them, committing all the sins and character of what she had done, they too would meet their judgment. And so it was that they too, the kings thereof, in verse number 9, bewailed this because the character of all their commerce was now gone. You'll notice in verse 10, they stood afar off and made note of this great city Babylon in one hour is thy judgment come. God's judgment would be somewhat swift upon Babylon. We recall that it was in the Old Testament as well. In the year 539 B.C., we will remember the Medes and Persians inasmuch as the character of events of strength, Babylon had weakened by that time. But the Persian Empire had grown in its strength and in that famous battle of 539 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, or rather the empire of Babylon was defeated never more to rise again, literally. We now understand here from verse 11, the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn, those who had done business with and those who accepted the character of Babylon. They too bewailed and mourned, for no man bought their merchandise anymore. Isn't it amazing to think of how easily it is to picture that? You'll notice in verse 12, of all this merchandise that's listed... All of it, of course, would no longer be easily sold, for the empire was crushed. Verse number 16, I would ask you to notice how it ends. Gold and precious stones and pearls. This city that had been clothed in such luxury. History tells us that Rome and so many of the cities that went with it had in fact invested enormous sums of money enormous sums of various metals and woodworking to the construction of these rather amazing buildings, roadways, cathedrals, houses, you name it. Obviously, they were rich people, not only in the character of financial things like that, but in the ability of slaves to do all the work. And yet here in verse 17, it says, "...in one hour so great riches are come to naught." that it would seem to me is one of the highlight verses in Revelation. Because doesn't it characterize you and me as helping us never forget the fact that there is something far more vital and valuable than riches, earthly riches that is. How was it that Jesus said that in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It has well been stated that hearses do not pull U-Hauls behind them. All that we've amassed here, we can't take it with us. All these physical things must remain. 
Jesus said, all that we shall have there, we've had to lay up ahead of time. What about the righteousness, the faithfulness, the works of Christianity? That's what we must have as our highest priority. No wonder so many writers of both Old and New Testament admonished us to never forget this fact. And Jesus stated it so aptly in Luke 12, verse 15. Beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Though we may occupy a job and work for a living and have a career, may it never occupy a position in which it separates us from the truth that God has revealed. That we make it our God and that we serve it just as we would the God of heaven. We notice it didn't help Babylon. In one hour, all those riches have come to naught. It couldn't save them. It didn't save them. Didn't Zephaniah say something similar in Zephaniah 1 verse 18? On that occasion, all the riches on the day of the Lord will not be able to make any salvation. Zephaniah's key theme was the day of the Lord, but on that occasion he even asserted the riches, the physical riches of those on that occasion would avail nothing. We should remember that in regard to the day of judgment, shouldn't we? The key element would have been to use what riches we had to do the service of God. Not to store it up and claim that that by in and of itself is the valuable thing that shall buy us a place in heaven. Heaven can't be bought. It's only by virtue of the grace of God and our responsive obedience to the grace that He's extended that we would be able to lovingly inherit that beautiful place. The mariners, we notice furthermore, the shipbuilders, the mariners, these others who in fact bewailed the fall of Babylon because that which they made their business with was gone. We notice again that when Babylon crumbled and fell, we notice so many impacted and influenced along with her. Here's another set of ideas about the nature of what we've seen so far. It's interesting, isn't it, as you look specifically at verses 18 through 20. It's easy to notice one more time the thought that we might well know, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets. In the midst of this destruction, in the midst of this condemnation from God, there is now a word of rejoicing. Who is to rejoice? It's certainly in Babylon. But rather it is, Thou heaven and ye holy apostles and prophets. The ones who were the faithful. Those who despite the fact that they endured hardship and great difficulty, they had opportunity to rejoice. And you'll notice how the verse ends. For God hath avenged you on her. God had in fact answered that plea we'd first seen back in chapter 6. When the seals, the fifth seal particularly, and there were souls beneath the altar crying, How long? Now we notice Babylon. The judgment has come upon her. And furthermore, we notice that God has avenged her of what she had done to the others. And you'll notice double was being paid back to her. Our God is very well aware of how to judge righteously. John chapter 7, verse 24. As we notice that cause and the way that that verse ends, that leaves us but four verses to close the chapter. In verses 21 to 24, this is how the chapter ends. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. 
and the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers, and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee, and the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegrooming of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all that were slain upon the earth. The horror of Babylon. What she had brought to so many others. And remember, as we've discussed, the tyrannical way that Rome persecuted Christians, made their lives so hard and difficult. A number of the Roman Caesars specifically inaugurated oppressions and persecutions against those that were Christians. We notice on this occasion, verse 24, the blood of saints and prophets. The verses preceding, though, one more time, might we note, we've already seen earlier in the chapter the destruction that was to come, but notice what was not to be found there anymore. Happy things, kind things, joyful things, beautiful things. Among them, the voice of singing, all that will be there now, mourning, we all always are able to see furthermore marriages. That is to say, the character of the joyousness that went along with the formation of a family because the hardships were such that no longer would matters like that ring in a symbolic fashion. Notice the craftsman. Rome had been the place where things of the earth could be crafted and made. No more. Rome would be crushed. We furthermore appreciate in verses 21 and 22, even trumpeters and musicians and pipers and those that played the harp, why would this not be anymore? Because you see, Rome was not a place for rejoicing. Babylon was no place for that. She met her doom and her destruction. May we give some thought as we close that chapter to a note that the principle, the precept embedded in a chapter like this one reminds us that though that Babylon has long since met its defeat, may we never forget that those precepts are still needful in your life and mine. How sad it is to trudge through life apart from the blessedness of God. Although there may be the appearance of happiness, and there may be the appearance of that which is noble and godly, without the peace of God that passes understanding, Philippians 4, 7, without the love of the Christ, Ephesians 3, 18-21, without the thoroughness of the recipients of God's grace, Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, there will never be the opportunity of the filling of one's life with all that it could be. And for that reason, we notice all these riches in one hour come to naught. No happiness, no sense of well-being. There's a song in our book that we sing from time to time, Is It Well With Thy Soul? That's a probing question. It really is. Is it well with thy soul? That's a very personal question and one we each are called upon to examine ourselves and answer. In fact, multiple times each day, is it well with my soul? If it isn't, we need to, in fact, make things right at once. Tonight, we've looked at Babylon's destruction, the fall of it. It had been declared since chapter 14, but now we've seen the finality, chapter 19, is going to take us to the next stage in this drama. Because again, we might ask, what about those who were behind Babylon? 
That is to say, the beast. Remember that beast back from chapter 13? What's going to happen to that beast? What about the dragon? We'll see in chapter 19. They'll meet their end as well. At this point, perhaps it's fair to say none of us want to be like the beast. None of us want to meet the end of the dragon because we're all aware of where that's going to be. And although we'll highlight it more fully next time, five little words will say it all. A lake burning with fire and brimstone. That's where the beast, the dragon, the false prophet, and all that follow them are going to be. Friend, we don't want to be there. We, in fact, don't even want to give serious thought to being there, but we want to live righteously, soberly, and godly, so that in this life we can have the fullness of the mercy that God would shed upon us through the blood of Jesus. And furthermore, when the days of our sojourn in this flesh have ended, that we can depart in peace. Hebrews 9.27 says it like this, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Are you ready for the judgment? Are you ready for it if it were to come for you in essence tonight? Once we pass from this life, we, by the way we've lived, have sealed that fate. There's no changing it after death. Despite the claims of some, there is no alternative but that fate that you and I have been in a position to receive as a result of the works done in the body, Revelation twenty-two twelve. Tonight, if you would be of a position that you need to respond publicly, this song of encouragement has been selected. If we could be of assistance to you, perhaps praying for your rededication. If you, though a Christian at one time, and a faithful and strong and powerful one have since lost the direction of your life, you've begun to live wantonly, carelessly, inconsiderately, giving little thought to the nature of some of the matters we've discussed tonight. If you need to return to that first love, why not tonight? We could pray with you and for you, as was done for Simon in Acts 8, verses 20 and following. If though you have never allowed your sins to be washed away in baptism, why do you delay? Why do you wait? The Son of God shed His blood for you. He went to Calvary for you. That crown of thorns was pounded on His head, the blood dripping down His face. His back laid open and scourging all for you. Do you not want to commit your life in faithful obedience to Him? Only in baptism can you contact that blood. And tonight, if you are in a position to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, to repent of your sins, to confess His majestic name, and to be baptized, what a great day for you it would be. If we could help you tonight in either of these ways, will you not let us know if you would while together we stand and while we sing?